You're listening to Don't Waste Water. At the stage that we're at, there's a lot of value in me having access directly to some of these customers. I do like to talk and understand. I think part of that helps keep me fresh as to where the strategy of the company needs to move. There's nothing that can replace the voice of the customer. As good as conferences and events are, nothing will replace hearing directly from someone with a problem. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. So it's not a hint towards a future collaboration much closer to the <laughs> I will. I will leave that to the imagination. I have a broad imagination. So that's... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Greg Newbloom as my guest. It's never a simple, straightforward process to integrate a new technology. So there does have to be trust and buy-in from the integrator that that they understand the value proposition. And in a lot of cases, when they see what we can do, the value proposition clicks very quickly. Greg is the founder and CEO of Membrian. Hot dog Brian, that's something a I've hot heard. Hot dog Brian, so. exactly, yeah. Makes you not want to necessarily eat hot dogs, but it's definitely a challenging wastewater. Membrane strives to help industrial water users who aren't satisfied with processes that are thousands of years old and who've been been searching for a better and lower cost way to recycle or reuse their wastewater. Marketing guru Louis Grenier has some key advice within his STFO methodology. But whenever he has a chance to rank a number one within his selection, he mentions that you should talk with your customers. And not just talk, engage with them, get to know them beyond any made-up persona and steal as much as you can from them. Not stealing like scamming or going out of their offices with some furniture, but stealing in the sense that you'll let them tell you their real pains and cater your solution to what really matters to them. Okay, so much for this hashtag marketing 101. Where am I heading with that? Actually, this is something like my 150th interview on this podcast. And I think I never heard anyone else implementing the simple trick Greg has put in place at Membrion and shares today. And yet it's disarmingly genius. Every single request you put in on Membrion's website actually goes straight to Greg. Don't spam him right away, but if you enjoy what he shares today, you can probably go tell him directly with Membrion's contact form. You'll hear in a minute how there's more than this trick, how even Membrion's presence in the water sector is actually the result from listening to market voices. And there's a ton of actionable advice in what you'll hear, so I let you make up your own minds, but I sense you will want to follow my advice and drop him a message by the end of today's episode. We actually recorded this episode some months ago. You know, I'm still a one-man band, so sometimes production times are a bit longer. Sorry for that but I may have big news soon. The reason I mention it is that Membrane closed a Series B early this year for $7 million, and you might be surprised I didn't raise the question in the interview. But don't worry, I raise many others, including one that really puzzles me that comes even after the rapid fire questions. I'll let you discover all of that, and remember, if you like what you hear, please take this episode and share it around you with a friend a colleague or an aspiring water entrepreneur that would praise some incredibly actionable advice and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems, as a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, G 
GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. Happy to be here. I'm excited for many reasons for the conversation we will be having today. First, I'm excited because I was digging into your technology, digging into the applications you're serving, and it had been a while that you were on my bucket list on topics I'd like to explore on that microphone. And I don't know if you heard it, but I had Scott Bryan on that microphone, and Scott Bryan told me he had a lot of fun with you at the Singapore International Water Week on top of everything else and all the other good reasons which would make you an awesome guest on that microphone. That's the context in which you're starting, but still I have traditions on that microphone, so I'll open with a postcard and you're sending us today a postcard from Seattle. So what can you tell me about Seattle, which I would ignore by now? I think for Seattle, really, the thing that you want to pay attention to here is really just visiting during the summertime. Seattle's worth being here for about three months a year and the rest of the time, you know, steer clear. And the rest of the time, you can get a Starbucks at every corner. That's right. right? Exactly. Any corner. (laughs) So actually, I thought that a good way to open this conversation with you is that I had on that microphone several accelerators. We were having the Elemental Accelerator, the European WaterTech Accelerator, Imagine H2, which is the number one in that space. And we never covered how it is to be on the other side. And so I was wondering, as a former member of a cohort of Imagine H2, and I think you're still a member of the cohort, how is it like? What did you learn? How is it? How did you decide to apply? What's the story here? Where does it start? So it's definitely, you know, we're now in their alumni network, but going into it, you know, for me, coming as a as an outsider to the water industry, I don't know if you remember like your first exposure to the water industry. It's like drinking out of a fire hose, right? Pun intended. There's just so much to learn. There's so much nuance. And so coming into that accelerator really was for us about connecting the passion of our technology and entrepreneurship to the kind of hard realities of the water industry and how things get done and what moves the needle and delivers value for customers. And I think for us, it really did act as truly as an accelerator. Things that would have taken us years to figure out, we figured out in weeks because we got connected with the right people at the right time. For us, it really was a transformational experience. And I think that it speaks a lot to the way that they structure the program. I could, you know, gush over Scott and and Lee and Ellie and the Imagine H2O folks. But yeah, it's a phenomenal program. Startups should definitely take a look if they're in the water sector. You mentioned you were an outsider. You were at some point a NASA researcher. So how does that happen? So I grew up like more interested in kind of the aerospace sector and yeah, spent some time at NASA and at Boeing and, you know, Seattle. We've got a lot of aerospace going on and did a lot of materials research. That's always been where my interest and curiosity has been and developed a new membrane. And membranes are really what brought me into the water space. It's really the technology we developed and just some smart investors that joined us early on that said like, what this can do, you really should be thinking about water. And I was like, oh, I don't really know anything about water. So let's start digging. And it turns out there's a lot to learn. So, But from what I've seen from your NASA years, it was about polymer at the time. Absolutely. Yep, exactly. It was polymers and nanocomposites and being able to develop really kind of robust materials in unique applications. From that standpoint, the theme is very similar, even if the application is, you know, we're not sending anything to space here. But yeah, no, it's definitely similar in that way. So someone comes to you and says, your technology would make a lot of sense in the water sphere and up you go, or you had to be convinced that it was worth to jump into water. Yeah, I had to be convinced. You know, I think that early on, it was one of those things where we didn't know exactly 
where it could fit or what value it could deliver. And I think that we were really focused early on around bridging both the technology to a value proposition and what actually gets the customer excited. You know, new technologies are always high risk. And so there's got to be a reason why someone picks a high risk option over the tried and true method. So yeah, it took a lot of digging. It took a lot of talking to people throughout the water industry and to really understand what are the challenges that exist today and where are technologies falling short. And then eventually we figured out that there's some spaces that what our technology can do fits quite nicely, but it, so it definitely took a while to get there. So what are those spaces? You have to give me just one problem that you're solving. What is that problem? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the one that we are doing really well, and we've got a lot of traction is in displacing trucking. I think that was one of the most shocking things I learned getting into the water industry is how common it is to truck wastewater from one site to another. In our world of trying to do things more sustainably and more efficiently, the idea of loading water onto a truck and driving it somewhere, it's the antithesis of sustainability, right? So when we learned that, we're like, oh, what's the problem that exists there? And often it's that you've got some contaminant that's at too high of a concentration. It's too complicated to treat on site or too expensive. And so people truck it to a centralized facility to be treated. And so we really started looking at what industries are frequently trucking wastewaters and what are the problems there. And what we found is that it's a lot of different industries that are doing it. And often the problems are quite similar in that there's a reason that the water can't be discharged or can't be reused. And often that comes down to the salts, minerals, and metals that are in there. And that's really what we can do from our technology is we can remove salts, minerals, and metals, and we can do it under really complex environments. And so that's really where we found our ability to do something unique in that we don't eliminate trucking because we're still a desalination technology. We still are going to produce a brine, but we dramatically reduce the amount. A lot of facilities might truck every day or multiple times a day, and we can drop that down to once or twice a week or even as low as once a month, depending on what all's in there and what we're moving. They would be trucking wastewater as of today. They start using a technology which has this magical number of 98% water recovery, which means that their volume that they have to truck out is divided by 50, roughly, and if I'm not too bad at maths, and instead of trucking away wastewater, now they're trucking away brines. But what is your technology all about? Really, what we make is a ceramic ion exchange membrane. You know, if you're familiar with ion exchange membranes, they get used in electrochemical technologies. So things like electrodialysis, CDI, there's a bunch of other technologies that leverage ion exchange or EDI, technologies that leverage ion exchange membranes. But all of those are based off of polymers. So all ion exchange membranes to date have been made from polymeric materials, and they're very delicate. It's very hard to use them under kind of oxidizing conditions, extreme pHs, temperatures, things like that. And so it's very much limited their applications, both in water, but in other sectors as well, is limited their durability. And so by leveraging ceramic materials to do that, we can handle a lot of these ancillary contaminants that are otherwise very challenging and degrading for membranes that our membranes can otherwise tolerate. We had some different definitions now in what you said. You said your desalination, your electrodialysis, your anion exchanger. I mean, for the layman, aka me here, sure. it makes a lot of different directions. So is it like a Frankenstein where you took the best out of all the technologies or how did you grow up the technology? Yeah, so I would say, you know, for us, what we're using is effectively, we're using it in an electrodialysis application. So the same things that an electrodialysis would be able to remove. So that's anything that's charged, so ionic, we're going to be able to pull out of water. That's really where what we're doing that's unique. And the thing that 
differentiates us from the traditional ion exchange membranes is that we make ours out of ceramic materials, which allows us to make it very thin. So they can be very energy efficient in the actual process of removing those salts. And then we can also, because they're more chemically and thermally durable, we're able to handle these extreme environments. And really what that comes down to, it's just limited pretreatment required, right? I think someone once told me that you can treat any water stream with a membrane if you have enough pretreatment involved. The reality is that at some point it becomes cost prohibitive to put all the pretreatment in place. That's really what's unique about what we're doing is it's minimal pretreatment while still achieving the outcomes of removing these ions. When you say minimum pretreatment, if I take a typical treatment train, and I know typical doesn't exist in our industry, but let's figure out it exists. How would it look like? Minimum, does it mean you have no pretreatment at all or would you still have a very rough filter in front of it? Yeah, we're still going to have a rough filter. So we use cartridge filters and things like that on the front end to protect. You know, we still have spacers. And so really, even if our membranes aren't going to get damaged, we don't want to clog the spacers. And so there are things like that, that that we have. But there's a lot of, if we take, for example, some of the work that we're doing in semiconductor facilities. In those cases, one of the streams that we've been very successful with and we're working with multiple different facilities on is with their copper wastewater stream. And in particular, they have many facilities have high concentration copper wastewater stream, and occasionally that's getting trucked off site for third party disposal. And in that case, what we're doing is those streams are pH zero, they've got a couple percent hydrogen peroxide, they've got chelating agents. So they have these elements to them. Any one of those would destroy an existing polymeric membrane. They just won't work for any appreciable length of time. And so you would have to have three or four pretreatment steps on the front end in order to have a suitable membrane. But for us, we don't need any of those pretreatment steps. And so we're able to remove that copper, which is the compound of interest, and then allow them to combine the rest of that with their bulk acid, wastewater, things like that, which can then be treated and neutralized and and things like that. So it, it ends up making it economical to recover it and be able to reuse that water as opposed to having it sent off for a special treatment because copper is obviously environmentally hazardous as a material and things like that. So you mentioned compound of interest, mentioning copper And you mentioned recovery. So to me, the obvious follow question is, why do you still truck away that concentrate of copper? Isn't there a way to recover that as well? Yeah, they actually do still. So right now they truck it off and they recover it. So they're going to take it through a process. And sometimes that'll go, depending on the facility, you know, we work with facilities that'll send that to electro winning or we'll send it to some sort of thermal process first and we'll recover the copper. So a lot of facilities are thinking in that circular way of wanting to recover the resources that, that are there. And the challenge, though, is that in order to do that, you ship a high volume of water. And really, you know, you can still recover that copper. If it's much more concentrated, it's actually more energy efficient to recover that copper. And so really, in that way, everybody is winning. Even the waste processing facility is spending less money to recover that copper on the back end. The only people that are losing are the people actually driving the trucks around because there's fewer trucks that are needed to happen there. But the copper recovery would be outside of your scope. That's not something that I look at as membrane. That's right, exactly. We kind of we look at ourselves as pairing with existing technologies to help make them more efficient. Recovering metals and things like that are way easier to do when concentrations are higher. And so from that standpoint, we really look at ourselves as how do we pair with existing technologies to deliver a more efficient overall process as opposed to being the standalone solution to a problem. And so, yeah, we often position ourselves as an efficiency enhancer. So microelectronics was your starting home turf, if I may say so. And if I'm right, you expanded since then into other applications. So 
how broad is the spectrum today? Yeah, we had a lot of success in microelectronics and working with some of the biggest names in the space there. We have expanded to a few different sectors, really with a goal of understanding the value proposition really well. So, you know, we're running pilots in the oil and gas space, in food and beverage, automotive, with cooling towers. We're working towards pilots with mining companies. And all of these, the streams that we're finding and that we're working on are ones that that basically we approach a company, we say, give us your trickiest stream. This is what we can do. You know, we're not an ultra filter. We're not a nano filter. We remove ions. So if there's a stream that that's the problem and TDS is often becoming a problem from a discharge and a reuse standpoint, then that's really where we focus on. And so we ask folks to give us their hardest streams and they almost always will point us towards something that they're currently trucking off site something that they're thermally desalinating, something that they're using a resin for, especially if the resin is a single-use resin. Those are the types of things that people say, this process is costing millions of dollars a year in OPEX. Can you make it more efficient? And that's really where we deliver the value. Now, if I'm playing the devil's advocate here, sure. trucking off has a very big advantage. It's that the second that wastewater is in the truck, it is no longer the problem of the industrial company. So can you one-to-one replace that argument by taking over all the liabilities of that water to be treated? I think this is where it's really unique in what we're doing because we aren't eliminating trucking, right? We're pairing with trucking. What we're doing is we're basically saying, hey, look, you're still going to truck our brine offsite at the end of the day. So you're not actually eliminating your existing unit process. It's still there. All you're doing is trucking less water. You know, if you're using a resin, all you're doing is using less resin. You're not eliminating the process. So this is really where we focus on existing facilities who are paying a lot for the OPEX of running their existing process and saying, and this is, I think, the great part, we'll tell the facilities, look, from a risk standpoint, even if we don't work long-term, and our payback periods are great, they're less than 24 months, so it's pretty easy to convince people with a pilot, yeah, this is going to last at least through the payback period, but even if we don't work long-term, basically, you've made your money back, you're running a more sustainable process. And if all else fails, you can go back to the way you were doing things without any risk, because you already have that process installed, you already know how to do it. And so that's a really key component as a startup is that we don't take on the liability because we're working with the processes the facilities already use. That is brilliantly clever. I didn't see it, <laughs> yeah. not know that you explained it. It's so evident. I mean, somehow you're a trucking pre-treatment. So the trucking yep. doesn't vanish, but you're making it just by a multiple more efficient. Exactly, exactly. Very you said something which I honestly rarely hear in that industry, which is pretty easy. Is it really pretty easy to convince an industrial company as a startup with a new process that they should go and still take the risk of changing something which works, which is maybe expensive, but works. You know, it's all a matter of perspective. I think that for us, the companies that we're working with, they all have ESG goals and objectives that they're trying to hit. And so they're looking for the new solution to these problems. They know they need to change the way they're doing things. They know it's problematic for them. They know it's expensive for them. And so when we come and the alternative options, so just to provide an example, you know, some of the facilities we're working with, then we can provide a 18 month payback period for the performance of our technology. And the next nearest competitor is 54 months. That's a project that we're gearing up for to run a pilot starting in a couple of weeks here. And so as we look with these facilities, it becomes in that case, when our next nearest competitor is 54 month payback period, it is a very easy 
value proposition to sell of, and without that risk of, yeah, if it doesn't work, you get to still use what you use today. Basically, we really work with facilities to help show them that there's minimal risk in implementing the technology. And we prove that at multiple points along the way with bench scale tests, with pilot tests, partnering with integrators who know how to deploy this technology successfully. Because that's the other thing Membrion doesn't do is we don't sell systems. We just sell modules. And so they get to work with the integrators that they know and love and trust who have grown to know us well enough to know that our technology works and they can deploy it. And so that's really where we create for them an experience where they're working with the same people they always work with, but they're getting to deploy something new at minimal risk to them. I still would like to put some spots on the different states of development. When was your first pilot? When did it start, the very first pilot unit? We started, basically, we finished getting our membrane manufacturing line up and running middle of last year. Editor Antoine here, sorry to interrupt. This episode was recorded in 2022 and aired in 2023. So when Greg mentions last year, it is indeed 2021. Back to life. So we started our first pilot in the fall of last year. And that pilot was at one of the world's largest semiconductors companies. We were treating copper wastewater. Was You're a not successful. allowed to say that it's Intel. I am, I, I'm not allowed to say who it is, but it's a familiar brand. And I can't say where because you'd be able to pick out who it is. But we were running and we were able to successfully show that in that pilot, the performance of our unit would reduce their operating expenses by $1.6 million a year and deliver a less than two-year ROI in deploying the full system. We brought in an integrator to be able to deploy that. And we're basically working through all the details of how to get that system installed and the footprint and everything like that. And we should see installation early next year for commercial installation of that unit. So that was the first pilot. We have two that are running right now that are almost finished and another one that's getting started. And then we've got a backlog of pilots from there that are getting teed up. But we basically started piloting about a year ago is really when we first started this process. We're still at the beginning of the journey, very much so, and learning a lot. And you know, the hardest part about that pilot was honestly was some of the things that had nothing to do with our membranes. That's often the case, right? It's how do you pump a liquid that has greater than 1% hydrogen peroxide and is literally bubbling. And those bubbles cavitate and cause your pumps to not be able to pump the liquid. So we can't get the liquid to our membrane. Those are the types of things we had to figure out on the pilot. The membranes did great, but it's all the ancillary stuff. And this is really where we're in the process of building partnerships with integrators who have the capability, who know how to do all these things, right? We don't, Membrion doesn't need to figure out how to put the right pumps on a pilot unit. That's not our expertise. We can let others do that well. So do you intend to partner with specific integrators or are you really agnostic when it comes to integrators? How much of mutual understanding and growing together is needed for integrator to pick up your technology? Yeah, I mean, I think that there definitely has to be motivation. It's not a drop-in technology, but it's also not wholly new either, right? Because electrodialysis has been around for a long time, but not every integrator knows how to deploy it. So certainly we have preferred integrator who knows how to work with us really well, has success deploying our technology. And we have others that are interested in learning how to do that and getting up to speed, but it's never a simple, straightforward process to integrate a new technology. So there does have to be trust and buy-in from the integrator that, that they understand the value proposition. And in a lot of cases, when they see what we can do, the value proposition clicks very quickly. And so we we do get folks that are interested in onboard and in learning how to do these things, but it is a process to learn for sure. On your website, I counted 19 person working for Membrion. So is that an accurate number or do you um, have? 
I think that was probably accurate a couple months ago. I think we're up to 24 now, and we're getting ready to hire a few more as well. We are perpetually short-staffed, which I suppose is a good problem for a startup. So The reason why I was asking that is that I was surprised to see that if anyone has an inquiry on your website, it's not like you, there's a contact formula and someone will come back to you. It is Greg Newbloom, our CEO, <laughs> is going to contact you. So you are going after all the inquiries. Why so? I think a lot of it is really at the stage that we're at, there's a lot of value in me having access directly to some of these customers, at least at the very beginning of the process, right? I think that people understanding who we are as a company, what we do, and getting that response. Now, I transition that off to my folks pretty quickly because you know I don't have time to directly interact with people all the time, but I do like to talk and understand. I think part of that helps keep me fresh as to where the strategy of the company needs to move. There's nothing that can replace the voice of the customer. As good as conferences and events are, nothing will replace hearing directly from someone with a problem. It made me think of a book which I loved reading now a while ago, which is Delivering Happiness from Tony Chier about the story of Zappos. And he's explaining mm. how he's forced at the time at Zappos all the executives to start working in customer service because that was the way for them to get connected to what the customer were asking and to the voice of the customer. And it's probably something we don't do that often in the water industry. So it looks like you still have that outsider mind, which is well adapted in that case. So it's not just a marketing move. It's really something that you do. So impressive. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. You mentioned the conferences, and that is something where you're quite active as well. I've seen you at the Blue Tech Forum in Vancouver. You were at the Singapore International Water Week. I see on your blog that you regularly update everybody about what you've seen at the conference, how that resonates with your roadmap and where you're heading. Why do you go to those conferences? And do you have best practices as to how to take the best out of those? Yeah, I mean, I go for for kind of that same reason of trying to connect with our customers. You know, we solve problems for end users, but integrators are ultimately the ones that are buying modules from us and working with us and building those channel partnerships is really critical. And so if they're going to be there, then I got to be there to be able to talk with them and see people and interact. And I think that for those conferences, I'm very targeted in what I'm focused on and why I'm at a space. Like I'm getting ready to go to Ultra Pure Micro here, which is the big kind of water conference in the semiconductor space. And so those are the types of things where I want to make sure for sectors that we're in, that I'm on the ground hearing what people are talking about. You know, what are the problems that are there and making sure that our technology is not going to solve every problem. But I want to make sure that if we're focused on a segment of the market, that we're solving a problem that's top of mind. Because otherwise, it's an uphill battle to try to get attention in any segment. And so you really got to find where the attention already is. So it's good to hear that your technology will not solve every problem because there is, I would say, a common pattern between some of the guests I had on that microphone Namely, I would say Harris Kadrispeik from LeakTech. I would mention Sebastian Andresen from Sembrain, Kai Gunter Gabriel, which we didn't publish the episode for some, let's say, political reasons. It was just before the war in Ukraine, so sure. bad timing for the episode. But one thing is common to everything they said is that to them, ceramics is the answer. Ceramics will wipe out polymerics, and they are so much better than all the other polymeric membranes that they can solve everything. And honestly, I am no one to judge if that's true or false, but from all the ceramic folks, you're the first one to say you don't have an answer to all the problems. No, I mean, you'd be surprised. We are obviously in a different space than a lot of those companies who are doing more microfiltration, ultrafiltration, things like that. We compete against, for example, reverse osmosis in some applications. And a lot of times, the number of times where customers bring a water source to us that's fairly benign, we will tell them, this is you'd be better off with RO. 
on this or you'd be better off with a polymer solution because the reality is ceramics, they deliver a ton of value, but they also aren't cheap. That's really where you have to understand the techno-economics of where do you deliver superior value and where are we coming through with something truly unique in the space. And I do think that ceramics do deliver a ton of value, but it's not for free. And so that's where really we, again, look at how do we pair with the right technology. Sometimes we'll go after an RO or before an RO, but you know, it's really about how do we work in tandem as opposed to how do we be the be-all, end-all solution to a problem. You mentioned the economics and you mentioned how technically it works and it simplifies the process. There's one driver which we haven't touched yet, which is the water driver, because I guess if you have this 98% water recovery for facilities which might be at a water stress, we've seen that with microwave drinks in Taiwan last year, And it is a recurring topic that, yeah, water is scarcer and scarcer. Does that play a role in the decision process of the industrials or not yet? I'd say it, it depends. In some facilities, it does. And certainly a lot of the spaces that we're working in North America are in kind of the Southwest United States, which are experiencing record droughts. And, you know, a lot of the facilities that we're working with are talking about concerns with local governments restricting access to water. And when those concepts come up, people start thinking differently about water, right? When water is abundant, people think about the cost of water. How much do I pay per meter cubed for this water? And what's my payback? And all those sorts of things. When you don't have enough water, you start thinking about the value of water. Well, if I don't get as much as I need, how much revenue do I lose? And all of a sudden, you know, your cost, your cost of water versus the value of water, it's almost 100x different between the value your water generates. And so in that case, when facilities are saying, we might not have enough, or maybe we have enough now, but that might change in six months, it does put a lot different threshold on what payback looks like. A two to three year payback period can change to a one to two month payback period if you are looking at the value that additional water generates if you don't have enough. And so that's certainly coming through in some of the facilities that we're working with, especially as we're helping to treat brine that otherwise they're just discharging because they don't have a way to economically treat it today. So we help people bridge those economics and bridge the practical realities. But I'd say we're kind of in that mix of ESG and helping address some of the water scarcity issues. I've seen in one of your brochures that you promote how your system has a simple automation compared to the status quo or the market standard. And I thought that would be then even better of a solution for distributed solutions or smaller systems because you can scale. I mean, you have less of that scale effect because you don't need to have a big facility to have a lot of people sitting there if you can automate everything. So what makes it easier or more convenience to automate? Some of it comes from the benefits that electrodialysis as a technology is fairly easy to automate. There's a lot of steps that require fewer chemicals because you can clean using different tricks with the electricity. With our membranes in particular, the nature of the ceramics, and this is one of the kind of universal value propositions of the ceramics, that they tend to be low fouling, so you don't have to clean them as often. And when you do clean them, you can clean them fast and aggressive to restore their performance. And so those sorts of things where we can really lean in to a kind of minimum maintenance, automated maintenance using the electric field reversal for the electrodialysis technology, things like that really do help to make it simple. Because we do get that a lot from facilities that say, hey, you know, what's the maintenance cost of this? Or how frequently am I going to have to check on this thing? It's a new technology. Do I have to baby it? And the reality is, no, you don't have to check it any more frequently and often much less frequently than ROs and similar technologies. 
you seem to have a technology which is very performing. I mean, 25% better was the lowest value I found online as the comparison to the next better one. So it sounds like something which is really outstanding. You're partnering with integrators. So you are really focusing on your zone of genius, if I might say so. So what's on the horizon for you? Where do you intend to grow? And how? Yeah, so I think, you know, immediately on the near-term horizon for us, a lot of where we're focusing is on brine, which is really taking electrodialysis into a space that it's never been before and bringing some of the unique value proposition into that segment where we're able to treat things up to close to saturation very energy efficiently because we can make, and these are things that we work with partners on, but we can make membranes that are extremely thin. That's an advantage of the ceramics that we work with. And so, so that delivers a lot of value. And so really thinking about how do you, like as we move towards MLD, ZLD schemes, how do you take what's coming out of the back end of the RO and more economically pull out that salt? Because really the trend is to the extent that you can minimize the amount that you have to use an evaporator crystallizer, the economics of ZLD are going to get better and better. And so that's really where we think we've got a role to play in that portion of the market. And then really focusing on precision separations is also where we're moving. Our membranes have the ability, we can make our pores bigger and smaller to selectively filter one ion over another. And so as we look at being able to leverage things like brine mining elements, that's really something that we're focused on is being able to selectively remove key target metals and minerals of value. Talking of brine mining, it's just on the other side of the border compared to where you are, but I guess you must know Saltworks and Ben Sparrow, he was on that microphone some months ago. It made me think of you're going in a similar direction, which sounds to be really consistent with the times. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think there's a ton of value there. And it's a space that is, there's not a whole lot of traction in. So it's really a wide open space from a, who's going to deliver the most value from a technology perspective. From a business standpoint, you mentioned how you're working with integrators. Would it make sense on the longer term to work closer with some integrators and to have like a real deep partnership for them to be your vehicle for growth? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that we're considering is how do you find the right partner in the right sectors and for the right stage for us as a company. And so that continues to be an ongoing kind of strategic element for us. And we've had to tell quite a few integrators, no, we've had a lot of people reach out and say they want to work with us. And it just wasn't the right fit for us at the time. And so we had to pass. So I think that there's some of those elements of we are very selective with who we work with today and really building out those partnerships to be able to scale is what we're focused on. Is the fact that you have Sivan Zamir as your director of the board a hint towards a good way to partner with an integrator or a larger player in the future? I think having Zavon on our board has been phenomenal. I mean, she's brilliant and I think very unique. You know, one of the things that we really wanted on our board of directors and, and Savan has it and Amanda Ritchie has it's another one of our directors is that deep water expertise and expertise bringing new technologies to market and expertise in membranes and those people end up in high-level positions in water treatment companies that ultimately can't work with us because there's conflicts of interest. And that's something that's really unique about Xylem is that what we're doing is really outside of their business model. So we were able to get Savan on our board without any conflicts, which has been phenomenal. She's made a huge impact in the few months that she's been with us. So it's not a hint towards a future collaboration much closer with <laughs> I will I will leave that to the imagination. I have a broad imagination. So that's... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I have a crystal ball question for you to close that deep dive, which is mm-hmm. if you look 
into the next five years or the next 10 years? What is a metric which tells you you've been successful? I think for us, it's we're really looking at metrics around CO2 emissions reduced and water recovered. And I think that's really, as we're growing, a lot of the projects that we're focused on is how are we returning water to be useful again and really pushing that reuse of streams that you otherwise can't reuse and doing that in a way that reduces the amount of CO2 over the status quo today. It's really easy to recover more water and spend more energy doing it. A lot of people have solutions for that, but being able to accomplish both of those, I think that's really our guiding star as we look at applications where we deliver value and what we view as success is more water while spending less energy than we're spending today. How do you track the CO2 that you avoid emitting? You know, when we work with facilities, we understand where they're trucking their water off to. If they're, you know, some facilities are using thermal processes. All of those are fairly easy to go and do calculations. And then we look at, as we're deploying commercial systems, what's the offset values relative to the technologies? Because as I mentioned, we are enhancing the existing technology. So if someone's using a thermal process, we're just helping them send less volume there. So it's very easy for us to track what the actual offsets of the process are. And so that's really going to be our guiding star moving forward. Well, Greg, It's been a pleasure to walk through that deep dive with you. Thanks a lot for the openness. And I hope I didn't push you too hard with my stupid, insisting question to know no, if you're going to be with one or the other. To round it off, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Sure. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I tried to keep the question short and your aim is to have short answers, but... I'm never cutting the microphone. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? There's a fun one that we've been working on recently with a major food company where we're treating a hot dog brine that has a TDS limit problem. Very has a very unique aroma to it. And we're actually going to hopefully be getting a nice large container of it to our facility before we run a pilot with them. And so that's definitely an interesting one and one that connects with all the senses, if you will. Hot dog brine. That's something a I've hot heard. Dog brine. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Makes you not want to necessarily eat hot dogs, but it's definitely a challenging wastewater. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Choosing one is going to be the hard thing. I think that really it's being able to stay in our lane and find the right partners. I think that's something where, you know, understanding what we do well versus what other people do well. You know, I mentioned some of that earlier. That's really things that we spent months learning things that other people already knew. So now we're much more eager to just find people who already know what they're doing. I have to sidetrack here. I should have asked in the deep dive. I'm wondering, you have this very clear focus of saying, this is what we do. We deliver the modules. Was that clear from day one? That is what you wanted to do? Or yeah, did you have a different expectation and that ended up being the best way to go to market? Yeah, completely different expectation. We were hoping to just be able to sell membranes to people who would then make modules and go to market. And what we found is that the folks that knew how to make modules were just, they were running into integration challenges and it was slow and they wanted a really cheap membrane that they could use in the exact same applications they're using today. And while our membranes are less expensive to make than a traditional ion exchange membrane, basically we felt the squeeze and we realized that it was a lot better if we went directly to the end user and heard their problems and figured out what we could do. And that's really kind of flipped it and said, okay, well, we need to make a module because if we want to be and have some semblance of being able to work directly with people, we need to have a way to deploy that with people. And so, yeah, we, we pivoted 
quite a few times along the way to a product that works. And we think this is the sweet spot. We don't think we have enough. We've got good relationships with integrators. We don't think we're going to have to go up again. And so we think we found a, found the sweet spot. It's fascinating because it's really a similar story to the one that Sebastian and Rosen from Sembrain explained on that microphone, how they wanted to build a membrane and how they found out they had to do the modules because that was really the critical mass to succeed in that market. Yeah. Thanks. There's something you're doing in your job today that you won't be doing in 10 years. Uh, probably answering those emails is probably something I won't be doing in 10 years. But I think that, yeah, I think that there's a lot of things even as over the last few years that I no longer do today. I'm no longer in the lab, for example, which is a little bit of a bummer as someone who's, you know, very technical in nature. But but yeah, I think I'm going to have to figure out how to connect with customers in a different way than answering emails directly. How many of these emails do you receive per week? Usually it's three to four is what we're getting from an inbound that are you know directly relevant from a customer standpoint and you think that you could stop that because usually it's kind of a you know it, it's when you're accustomed to it, it's you have the pulse of the customer so yes. letting that go must be really difficult Exactly, which is why, you know, no no intention of, you know, letting those direct relationships lapse anytime soon. But in 10 years from now, Membryon's going to be way too big to be able to handle all that. So makes a lot of sense. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I think the I think the impacts of water scarcity and even water abundance are very much in their infancy. I think that it's going to create all sorts of really unique problems and lead to a lot of really unique solutions that don't exist today because facilities are used to getting easy water. And so I think that those like macro trends around too much water and too little water are things that we've got to pay more attention to and be ready for. If you were a world political leader, what would be your very first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Ooh, good question. I maybe, you know, I think one of the things that surprised me most in the water industry is the disconnect between the or the subsidies that are related to water and how that really warps the value that we see in water because it's so highly subsidized. And I understand that because it's a basic human need. So we can't charge people to live. But I, I think that there are ways to remove some of those subsidies, especially for industry and agriculture, and force some of those costs to trickle through would have a massive impact on the way we do things and the way we conserve water in particular would change dramatically if businesses were paying full fare for the water that they're using. I think I would vote for you as a world political leader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Greg, it's been a real pleasure. I mean, Scott had set the bar quite high in terms of expectations of what I would expect from, from that conversation and outperformed. So, so thanks a lot for the oh, openness. If people want to connect with you after that discussion, I guess they know how to do. They just go on the yeah, exactly. website and they enter a customer inquiry, right? Exactly. Yep. They can, they can do that. Also, LinkedIn is great as well. You know, either way is great. And would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that microphone? Yeah. I mean, if you haven't, I don't think you, have you had a chance to talk to Alex Rappaport yet from Zwitter Co? Yeah. So Alex is phenomenal. You know, of all the, di there's a lot of different membrane technology companies out there. And obviously, you know, Alex and the Zwitter Co folks are doing something in a different space, more nanofiltration than desal, but their stuff is really cool. And Alex is a great guy. I think you'd have a lot of fun talking with him. Okay. Sidetrack warning here. There's 1000 membrane companies. How yeah. can it be? I mean, really, I'm gonna... figure there's really 1,000. And I'm hoping one day to bump into one where I'm saying, oh, this one, I've seen it before.
like there's another one which is similar and it's not true every single membrane company i've discussed with was really different and has a lot of reasons for for existing i cannot say it's redundant so yep. is water really such a special snowflake that it needs 1000 different ways to treat it with membranes probably not i think you know as i looked more in the water space so much of it so many membrane there's a lot of like new membrane companies that come and they go and they get a little bit of traction and then they go back down because while they we get very tied up into love of technology love of performance interest in what something can do that's new but then you start running the numbers and the costs and the value it delivers and it's 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 not a lot different than just you know adding an ultra filter on the front end of an ro you know and so that's i think where we miss the bar in new technologies and that's why i think that there's probably at least a hundred membranes that are needed because water is very nuanced, but a thousand, that's probably a little overkill. Sorry for the ending of the conversation sidetrack, but I had to ask that one. I would have hated and not raising it because it it sounded like you you would have an informed opinion, which you had. So Mm -hmm. again, Greg, thanks a lot. And I hope to to cover the next steps pretty soon because you will have your full scale with that mysterious company next year. And I guess that if you If you tracked it down, if you looked through some of my LinkedIn posts, you could probably figure out who it is. They've spoken on their behalf about what we're doing. So it's easy enough to find it. I just can't say their name out loud. So... I understand. <laughs> so thanks a lot and talk yep. to you soon. Wonderful. Thanks. Actually, a big thank you to Greg Newbloom for having been an awesome guest in this week's episode. I would send my points. You've heard him. If you go to Membrane's website and you go to the contact form, it goes directly to Greg. So if you've liked what he's shared today, how he's been very rich in thoughtful and actionable advice, go there, tell him. I think he'll appreciate the gesture. And the reason why I'm taking the microphone again at the end of this episode is that we have a bonus section today. It's actually a piece of art that Azim Kolzo sent to me. Azim is new business development manager and acquisition strategist for Asia Pacific, Middle East and Africa at Global Water Intelligence. And to give you a bit of context, there have been a lot of talks recently around ChatGPT. I mean, unless you live on Mars, you've heard about it. And Walid Khoury did a LinkedIn Live where he basically chatted with ChatGPT. Kind of interesting, sure, but still I stand the point I shared during Walid's event. Our AI friend is a confidence liar and he's quite vague when it comes to a topic as specific as the water industry. Anyways, Azim has been using ChatGPT quite differently from Walid. He's asked him to do a rap battle on water utilities. And honestly, it's pretty good. So kudos to Azim for putting this together and sharing it with all of us. Plus, it enables me to close this episode with a bit of music. Go thank Azim on LinkedIn if you like it. And I'll see you next week. Water utilities. I'm the ah, the one that started it all bringing fresh age 20 to every home and mall. I quench your thirst and keep you clean. Without me, your life would be quite lean. Electrical utilities. Water may have come first, but I still hold my own. I power your world and keep you connected. I make your life convenient and oh so bright. Without me, you'd be stuck in the dark. All night, gas utilities. I may not be as flashy as electricity, but I'm still a force to be reckoned with. I heat your home and keep you warm, no matter the season. I cook your food and fuel your cars. Without me, 
you'd be freezing and starving like a bunch of scars. Water utilities. You may think you're all that electricity, but you're just a flash in the pan. Without me, you wouldn't even have a chance to exist. I keep the world running, and you're just a mere afterthought. So don't get too cocky. You're not as important as you think. Gas utilities. And you, gas, may have your uses, but you're no match for me. I'm the lifeblood of the world, the one that truly sustains. Without me, you'd be nothing more than a puff of smoke. So don't get too full of yourself. You're not as great as you might. All three, we may have different roles, but we all work together to provide you with the services that you need. We may not always see eye to eye, but we're all important. But there's no denying that water is the one that truly reigns. So show some love to your utilities, and we'll keep you thriving. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.